Tisha B'Av is this week, and Tisha B'Av is the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, right? So if you have your, your calendars, uh, you look on it, you see that we're in the month of Av, and this week it'd be the ninth day will be taking place. So uh, that is a commemoration, kind of like in the United States, we say July 4th, and people know you're referring to Independence Day. Well, this is the name of the date but it's referring to a specific fast day, a specific event that um, has to do with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. In 586 BCE, the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar on this very date, this ninth day of the Hebrew month of Ovid. The year is, that I'm giving there is the Gregorian calendar, 586 BCE, but the day is the, on the Hebrew calendar, the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av. And then uh, the temple was then rebuilt 70 years later, uh, even a little more than that. Cyrus allowed us to go back to Jerusalem, begin the rebuilding of the temple. We began to start to rebuild the temple with Zerubbabel and, and uh, Yeshua ben uh, Jehozadak. And then a little later on came Haggai and Zechariah. And then oh, over 50 years later uh, come Ezra and then Nehemiah for the completion of the temple. So about a hundred year time span in the full rebuilding in the walls and everything of the temple and the city. And we fast forward another few hundred years, five or so hundred years, and we come to 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. The second temple now was destroyed on Tisha B'Av, right? I mean, what are the chances of that? I mean, you think of how, how, I mean, I doubt the Romans, you know, were kind of waiting. Well, we got another month, uh, another week, and then we can go in and, and bring it. No, they, you know, they, they it, were trying, they had laid seeds, they attacked, attacked, and were finally able to break through. And it happened to be on the same time that the first temple was destroyed on the same day. And so thus, fasting uh, began again and has taken place on this date for the last close to 2,000 years. Now within that 2,000 years, a number of other events have taken place on this ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av. So we go about 1,000 years from the destruction. Well, here I got another picture of the temple being destroyed. Not only the temple being destroyed, but thousands of Jewish people being slaughtered and killed on that date. And so we go 1,000 years Past that, and we come to 1096, and on that day, the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, the first crusade began, slaughtering thousands of Jewish people. So Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple on Tishbav. The Romans, pagan Roman, the Roman Empire, destroyed the temple, the second temple on Tishbav, and now Roman Christianity began the Crusades, crusading along and slaughtering, as you see in the picture depicting people with swords killing Jewish people, and there's Jesus up in the top corner looking on kind of approvingly of the massacres that took place. Here's another uh, woodcut that was made at that time, a Jewish person in forced conversion with a nun there holding a crucifix and a soldier with a sword over the young man's neck, and in the background, a man being killed 
hoisted up on a wheel so that the birds can just pluck out his eyes and pluck at his skin and the sun uh, just kill him if he's not already dead. And so these are the atrocities that took place during the Crusades and during the Dark Ages. Another painting, uh, Jews rounded up and then burned to death, burned alive. Um, so you have a man, a villager, coming and bringing wood to pile on and stoke the fire more and more. I mean, as atrocious as that is, as horrible as that is, it wasn't done in a secret. It wasn't done hiddenly. It was done openly in, in paintings of it, boasting of it, demonstrating of it, encouraging it. And another gruesome one, this is a painting depicting a lie uh, that uh, was perpetuated for hundreds of years and still is around in some circles today, stating or indicating and, and trying to prove that Jews, so the people there, the clothes people there are supposed to be Jews, and the, and the young boy there, blonde boy there, supposed to be a Gentile, that, that the lie went, the Jews would kidnap young children, young Christian children, and drain their blood to make matzah with. And that was believed, and believed so strongly that they would go and then burn a village down and kill everybody in it. Um, and I mean, it's so ridiculous because Jews don't eat blood of anything. They don't eat blood of a, of a, of a cow or anything, a lamb, let alone from a human, which is an unclean animal. They don't eat unclean animals and they certainly don't eat blood from clean or unclean animals. So to say that matzah is made from human blood is just such an absolute ludicrous statement uh, and that they would kidnap children to be able to do that is so crazy, but it was believed. And again, believed for hundreds of years and still taught in certain circles even today. Blood libel, it's referred to as, and again, many, 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 many people died as a result of that lie. And so a child would disappear, whether he ran away, wandered off, got killed somehow out in a hunting thing or whatever, or a parent killed him and hit him, or someone else killed him and hit him, or uh, for whatever reason, got pregnant and was ashamed and ran off and whatever. So they would blame it on the, on the next village over. The Jews must have taken the child and must have used his blood for making matzah. And then they'd go and just slaughter everyone in that village. So the first crusade started on Tisha B'Av, and again, thousands of Jewish people lost their lives because of these holy religious crusades. About 200 years after that, in 1290, King Edward I of England decided Jews aren't allowed to live in England anymore and expelled us out of the land. And that worked so well, 16 years after that, France decided to do the same exact thing and also on Tisha B'Av. England did it on Tisha B'Av, France did it on Tisha B'Av. Uh, many other horrible events, horrible atrocities took place in Russia, Germany and other things, but these are events that we're looking at tonight all took place on Tisha B'Av. So we're not listing all the horrible things that happened, only the ones that took place on Tisha B'Av. And I mean, if you were told that you had to leave and were expelled, 
You lived there, your family lived there for hundreds of years. You had a home, business, land, whatever. How much do you think all that'd be worth? Everyone knows that you have to leave. You have to sell your stuff. Your value goes down to nothing and then you're expelled and you have to go find another place to live. And so maybe some of the Jews from England went to France. Then that 16 years later, they told you have to leave here and they leave France. And maybe they go to Spain. Well then, in 1492, Spain decides, we don't want you here either, and expels the Jews out of Spain by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. 1492, on Tisha B'Av. Does anyone else know what happened in 1492 out of Spain? Columbus sailed the ocean blue, correct. The very next day on the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Av. And there's some interesting correlation with that. Uh, he had uh, some Jewish people on his ship, um, not necessarily as runaways, but they were hired staff. And, um, and God used that to open up the way to the new earth, new land, for which religious liberty has flourished, fortunately. And uh, we've had religious liberty and have not yet been <laughs> kicked out of the land. That's some of the history of the atrocities. So you can see it's a fast day, horrible day in remembrance. And so it's remembered as a fast day in religious Jewish circles in fasting for the destruction of the temple and all these other atrocities that have taken place on Tisha B'Av. So our message tonight, we're going to go all the way back to the time of that first destruction and events at least that referred to that first destruction on Tisha B'Av in Zechariah chapter 7 regarding this fast day and so I titled it not so fast concerning the fast so Zechariah chapter 1 verse 7 in the fourth year of King Darius the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month of Kislev now Kislev we're familiar with that month because again our calendars you look on the calendars Kislev Hanukkah comes on Kislev, on the 25th day of Kislev. So they're coming, they're coming and we're seeing this event that's taking place here in Zechariah chapter 7 is taking place in this ninth month, right? So it's the um, fourth day of the ninth month and that's maybe November, maybe December, depending on the year, right? So winter time and in the fourth year of King Darius. And so for the fourth year of King Darius, right, so we had the temple was destroyed somewhere over here. We go 70 years, we're allowed to return under Cyrus. The temple began to be rebuilt. Then it had a stop for a short time after Cyrus died because of opposition. And then current kings did not defend us until Darius comes along and allows us to start rebuilding again. And the rebuilding began in about the second year of his reign. So our text here is in the fourth year of his reign, so about two years into the rebuilding of the temple. And it took about another two years for the temple to be finished being rebuilt. And then there's a long pause before then the walls of the city get rebuilt. And so that's where we are in this timeline of history, right? So this rebuilding with Zerubbabel and Yeshua ben Yuzadadak and Zechariah and Haggai prophesying. Okay, so this is the fourth year of that time period. In the ninth month, again, the winter time. 
Verse 2, and when the people sent this guy with his other guy and his men from Bethel to pray before the Lord and to ask the Kohanim who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets saying, should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? Okay, so these two guys and some other people come from Bethel. They come to Jerusalem, come to the temple to ask the Kohanim and the prophets. What prophets? Haggai and Zechariah. Because right? that's the time we're talking about, right? So in the fourth year of Darius, they've come in the winter time to ask the Kohanim and the prophets, should we continue to weep in the fifth month and fast as we have done. What fast are they talking about in the fifth month? What's the fifth month? The month of Av. So they're talking about, so here they come in November, December, and saying, 10 months from now or so, when we, or eight months or whatever it is, from now, when we get to the fifth month, should we be fasting? So they're thinking way ahead. <laughs> Even though they're going to be back at Passover, but they're thinking way ahead. They've come and they're thinking about this, maybe because they're seeing the temple being rebuilt and going, hey, this is going along pretty good. When you guys are finished building, should we still continue to fast? We've been fasting for the destruction of the temple and you've almost got it done. They had two more years to do it. They did it in two more years. So should we continue to fast? Should we continue to fast on Tisha B'Av? That's exactly what they're asking. Right? So that's why this text fits right into our study today. They're referring to the fast of Tisha B'Av. And so how does Zerubbabel, or rather Zechariah and, and Haggai and the Lord respond? Verse 4, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, this is Zechariah speaking, saying, say to all the people of the land and to the Kohanim, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven, seventh months, during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me. When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? So he responds back, you asked me about the fifth month, I'm going to give you an extra bonus. I'm not only going to tell you whether or not you should fast on the fifth month, I'm going to tell you about the seventh month as well. You asked a small question, I'm going to give you a big answer. That's what God's saying here. He's going to give you extra credit, right? He's going to give you an extra bonus for it. If you ask for one scoop, I'm going to give you two scoops. All right, so the fifth month is referring to Tisha B'Av, the fast then, but there was a fast on the seventh month, which also still had to do with the destruction of the temple. After the temple was destroyed, uh, a governor was placed in charge, Gedalia. We studied him when we did the book of Jeremiah, and he was murdered, slaughtered, killed, um, and so they began a fast in remembrance of him, and they continued that for 70 years. And that's what uh, Zechariah says here, during these 70 years that you've been fasting, you've been fasting for 70 years for Tisha B'Av, for the destruction of the temple. But did you fast for me? For me, he asked that twice. Have you really been fasting for me? Have you been sad? about how it's affected me. Or when you eat and when you drink, do you do it for yourself? Is your fast for you 
Oh God, please give us back a temple again. Oh God, give us back our city again. Oh God, give us back our nation again. Has it all been for me, for self? Lord, restore it for me, restore it for me, restore it for me. Or have we been sad for God's sake? Have we been touched with his feelings? That's the question he's asking him. What is your fast really all about? Are you just going through the motions? Are you just doing it because it's become tradition for the last 70 years? Or are you really fasting and upset and sad and weeping for the things that I weep about? What about us? What are our prayers about? Are our prayers all about me? Are our prayers selfish? Is it for our needs? Lord, give me a house. Lord, give me a car. Lord, give me a spouse. Lord, give me a child. Lord, give me this. Give me that. Give me a good day. Give me a happy day. Give me all stuff for me. Heal my toe. Is it all about me? Is our prayers selfish prayers? That's what God, through Zechariah, is asking them. You want to know if you've been fasting? You really haven't been fasting. You've been just looking for a Santa Claus. Is that Twitter? And not necessarily that those prayers are necessarily bad. But if that's all our prayers are, then we're the center of it. And God is not God, we're God. And we're telling God what to do. We're telling God what to give us. We're the ones trying to dictate the future and God's plans for us. But are we praying with God's heart? What is God's heart? What was it about the destruction of the temple that hurt God? That thousands of people were slaughtered? That we were taken captive? That the symbolism of the Messiah, the sacrifices were no more? The events that led up to it, the sins that led up to it, those are the things that concern God. Are we praying God's prayers? And where is God's heart? What is God's heart? Scriptures tell us that the good shepherd leaves the 99 sheep in the fold to go and find the one lost sheep. That's where God's heart is. That's what God's concern is. That's where God's eyes are. And that's where our prayers should be for the lost. It was a family, they'd get together on a holiday. Every year, it was a yearly tradition. They'd all get together, no matter where they had moved, they'd fly in, they'd drive in, they'd come in, and they'd all get together and have a dinner together. And mom would cook, even after dad had died, mom would still cook this, their favorite meal. And she had this soup that they, was the traditional soup for the year at the time, and she'd be cooking that soup, and they'd all be there, and the kids were there, the grandkids were there, and they're all there together, chatting together, getting up on news about each other's families and hearing the stories of the year. Mom would be in the kitchen cooking. And they'd say, Mom, come on, we're hungry, let's eat. And she'd say, not ready, it's not ready yet, the soup is not ready yet. 
And so the time would go by, and they'd yell out again, Mom, come on. Let's eat. It's getting late. we got to get back. Oh, it's not ready yet. The soup is not ready yet. Not quite warm enough yet. She'd be looking out the window right there in the kitchen, stirring the soup. And then when one of her sons, the youngest son, Jimmy would finally come, as he always came, very late, half drunk, come wandering in. She'd see him, and then she'd say, oh, everyone gather around the table. I think the soup is ready. And then they'd be able to eat the meal and have to put up with Jimmy, his off-color language. And so one year, the siblings decided, let's have a holiday this year without Jimmy. So they called some of Jimmy's friends and they gave them some money and said, look, take Jimmy out, get him so drunk, go do whatever you want with him, go take him out, make him forget the time, and just take him on a road trip somewhere, anywhere, we don't care. Go and have a good time, and here's some money. And so they all gathered around the household, and they're having a fun time, and they're all chatting together, and the grandkids are all playing together. And mom's in the kitchen, she's cooking away, stirring the soup. Mom, let's eat. It's not ready yet, I think it needs a little bit more seasoning. They wait a little longer. Mom, come on, let's eat. No, it's not quite warm, warm enough yet. The potatoes aren't cooked yet. Not quite ready yet. Hey, wait a little longer. Half hour, Mom. Come on, let's eat. No, 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 no. The soup's not ready yet. Mom, Jim's not coming this year. He just ain't coming. Let's eat already. No, no, we can't eat just yet. And so, an hour goes by. They keep on trying to convince Mom and she's just not gonna come sit at the table. So the siblings have a little discussion together. They decide, look, mom's not gonna get out of that kitchen. So they call Jimmy's friends and say, bring him back, bring him over here. We're never gonna get out of here tonight. We're never gonna get to eat. So his friends bring him off, drop him off at the door. He can hardly walk in the door, but he finally comes in and when mom sees him, sees him, okay guys, let's eat. The soup is ready. God's heart is on the lost sheep. And he won't come back until everyone has had an opportunity to hear the gospel. And if we want to go home to the Lord's supper table, we need to be about the Lord's business. And it's a lot easier now than it will be. But one way or the other, we're not going home until we get the message out there. That's where God's heart is. And that's where God's people's heart need to be. And until our heart is in harmony with him, all our fasting and praying is just selfishness. Our prayers are just selfish prayers. All about ourselves. Not for others. Not for what God really cares about. Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed to the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prospered, and the south and the lull and they were inhabited? 
Now he's talking about 70 years ago. Shouldn't you have obeyed and then the temple wouldn't have had to be destroyed beforehand to begin with? And I can see them saying, look, that was 70 years ago. I wasn't even alive then. Why are you, why are you harping on me for that? Well, nonetheless, if our sins are just, if our prayers are just selfish prayers, we're really no better than those that are disobedient anyway. They were disobedient and rebellious against God for selfish reasons, so we're acting religious for selfish reasons as well. There's a lot of benefits to having the temple rebuilt, and so we can understand them fasting and wanting it to be rebuilt and praying for it to be rebuilt. There's a lot of benefits to having worship services and coming together as the Bible commands, do not forsake your assembling of together. We benefit from the fellowship, we benefit from the, 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 the common beliefs, the fellowship together all week long, we're hammered and put down and the negativity and the news and all the bad news, and we get to hear some encouraging words, we get to hear from each other answers to prayer, we get to see each other smile, we get surrounded with extra angels because everyone's angels come together as we come together, and the peace of God and to sing uplifting songs, and to pray for one another, to be encouraged by one another, tremendous benefits come, and giving and, and, and giving offerings gives you a good feeling. It's a good feeling. Even an atheist gets a good feeling out of giving and doing something good. That's something natural in us. How much more for the believer when they know that their gift is going to be used in, in building up the kingdom and more people will be in the kingdom of heaven as a result. It's a lot of benefits of coming together. That's why Satan is working so hard to keep people from coming together. To stop services. To discourage us from coming together. There's great benefits to that. And so yes, it's okay to be praying, build the temple, build the temple. But is it just for us? Are our motives so that other people can hear the Lord? So people can hear the gospel? Or is it just for me? So I have a comfortable seat, so I'm in air conditioning, so I can have some friends. So I can have my prayers prayed for by other people. We can have selfish motives for coming to services. We can have selfish motives for giving. The Bible says, give and it'll be given back to you. Well, I want a lot being given back to me. <laughs> we can give for selfish motives. Ananias and Sapphira gave so that everyone would see that they gave. Be praised for giving. Have a plaque on some place after their name for giving. A lot of selfish motives can be given for giving. Why do we give? Do we give for God? For God's sake? For what God cares about? Do we come together and worship and fellowship together? Why do we do the good deeds that we do? Do we do it because God has given us love and care for other people? Or is it so that they'll thank us? So that they'll do good back to us? I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. What is our motives for doing what we do? Are we doing it for God's heart, with God's heart? Or are we doing it for ourselves? So he's asking here. They should have obeyed to begin with. When times were prosperous, when things were good. Some people pray and come to services only when things are bad. But when things are good, hey, what do I need to go for? We need to be consistent. Giving when it's raining, coming when it's raining, coming when it's raining and coming when it's sunny. Worshiping God in good times and in bad times. 
Thanking the Lord in good times and in bad times. Praising the Lord in good times and in bad times. Praying without ceasing in good times and in bad times. Prosperous times or distressing times. Some people only come when things are going well. And they're happy and they can smile about it, but when they're down and discouraged, then they don't want to see people. They don't want people asking how you're doing. No, we need to be consistent and come regardless. And when things are going good, we can say why they're good. And they can rejoice together. And when things are not going so good, then we can have people pray for us. And pray with them. One way or the other. It should be consistent. It's God saying, things were prosperous and they weren't obeying. Now things are coming together. Things were bad and you were, you were, you were fasting and praying. Now you're asking whether we should continue that or not. Should have obeyed to begin with. And again, they're saying, well, that was 70 years ago. We weren't even allowed. We can confess not only our own sins, we can confess our parents' sins and our great-grandparents' sins. And let God forgive it and cleanse it and remove it away. All right, today in some cities, they turn garbage dump, right? They have a garbage dump and landfill. They put all this garbage in there. And then they decide, okay, it's full. And then they just cover it with dirt and then they build a city on top of it. <laughs> it's still built on garbage. It's still a garbage dump. And God doesn't do that. He doesn't just build his new character on top of the garbage. He removes the garbage out of our lives through the sacrifice of the Messiah. He came to die and take it away. And so we can confess the sins of our fathers and our forefathers back generational curses. We can confess that and have it cleansed out of our lives because it still does affect us. That, that garbage still seeps up. On a rainy day, the smell will still come up through the city. It'll still come up through the sewers. It'll still come up through the pipes. It'll still come up through the dirt. We need to have the Lord remove it out of our lives. Confess our own sins and our past and the past generational curses and let the axe be laid at the root and forgiven and cleansed so that we can be freed from it. Yeshua has come to die for our sins and to break the hold that Satan has had over us because of our own wrong choices and the generational wrong choices and set us free. As the power of the gospel. And only the Lord can do that. The Lord sets us free so we can move on into a future with new hearts and new lives. But that's not what's painted in typical psychology. It's blame the past and then use it as an excuse for our current situation. And I've seen people holding on to something that was done 45 years ago. Get over it. Give it to the Lord. Leave them with the Lord. Leave what they've done to you with the Lord. Leave the guilt of what you did 45 years ago with the Lord. That's why he died. Let him take it away. Let him remove it. The hurt, the pain, the guilt, the sorrow. Surrender it to him. Let him take the garbage away. He's a garbage collector. Just pile, try and pile up good deeds on top of the garbage. Let him remove the garbage and make all things new. That's what he does in us. And so he brings it up to them. You're fasting, but you're fasting with selfish prayers, which is not much different. So you got your religiosity, but back then they had their disobedience. The word of the Lord came to them, came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
execute true justice, show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plant evil in his heart against his brother. Where's God's heart here? Where's his concern? What does he mention? He mentions it more than once. On his brother. Execute justice, show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien and the poor. Let none of you plant evil in his heart against his brother. God's heart is for the brother. Who's your brother? Who's your brother? Everybody. Same as your neighbor. Everybody. God wants us to be kind and merciful and compassionate and show justice to our brother, to everyone. Whether they are in some of these examples here, physically poor and oppressed, but people can be poor and oppressed and have lots of money. Rich people need compassion as well. Rich people can be widows as well and be lonely and sad as well. In other words, anyone in need, physical need, financial need, spiritual need, social need, be kind and be compassionate, be loving, merciful, long-suffering, patient, show justice to all. And do not plan evil. Do not have evil in your heart. Do not think evil against them. Love them. When you're fasting, don't just be fasting and praying. Lord, remove them, help me from this horrible boss I have, this horrible neighbor I have, this horrible landlord I have, this horrible parents that I have, these horrible children that I have, this horrible brother, this horrible sister that I have. No, but praying for their salvation. Praying with God's heart. Praying for them to come to the Lord. That's where God's heart is. That's where our prayers need to be. But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law. And by the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets, thus great wrath came upon them from the Lord of hosts. So the warnings came. They were disobedient. They refused the law. So why is he bringing that up here? These guys are holy people. They're building the temple. They've come to offer. They've come to do prayers. They've come to seek the prophets in the Kohanim. They've come and said, we've been fasting for 70 years. Should we continue to fast? Or should we rejoice? The temple's being rebuilt. These are good people. Why is he bringing up the past disobedience? Because we're really no better. We're really no better. If all our religiosity is for selfish, selfish reasons, God wants to cleanse us from either ditch, right? Rejecting God or serving God for selfish motives. He can deliver us from either so that we can serve God and love God like Job. That's why God loved Job. That's why Job was righteous in his generation. That's why he was upright. Because Satan said, oh, he only serves you because you're so good to him. But Job loved God when things were good, and Job loved God even when things were not good. 
The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Should I praise him only in the good or should I also praise him when things are not good? Praising the Lord, serving the Lord for unselfish purposes. Loving him. Regardless if we have things here. We can follow the Lord so that we get to go to heaven. So that we don't burn up. That's still selfish reasons. Now it's factual, we'll get to experience heaven. Factual, we won't get burned up. If we serve the Lord, if we follow Him, if we surrender our hearts to Him, if we accept His sacrifice in our behalf, we accept His removal of the sins in our lives, we accept His power of the Holy Spirit to transform us and change us and move us in His way and make us obedient to Him. Yeah, we get to experience those things. But those shouldn't be our motives. Our motives should be so that we could be with God. Our motives should be so that other people can be with God. So that heaven could be full with God's children. Therefore it happened just as he proclaimed, and they would not hear, so they called out and would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, and they made the pleasant land desolate. So just as prophesied, if you don't obey, you reject the Lord, Babylon's going to come in, destroy the temple as they did on Tisha B'Av. And he said that's what happened. In other words, that's what's going to happen to you guys too. That's why he's telling it to them. If we're not worshiping with right motives. And God can change us so that we can be like Job. God can change us into his image so that we can have his heart. Let this mind be in you that was in Yeshua the Messiah. Not just a dirty mind covered with a pretty face. Not just putting a smile under a depressed time. But he takes away the dirty thoughts. He takes away the depression. He takes away the gloom. And he fills us with true joy. And even though this is where chapter 7 ends, it's not the end of the book, and it goes on into chapter 8, where he promises the temple will be rebuilt, and we'll look at that another week. But one verse out of chapter 8 I wanted to look at, 8 verse 19, this is what the Lord Almighty says, the fast of the fourth month, the fifth month, Tisha B'Av, the seventh month, again for Gedalia, and the tenth month, all having to do with the destruction of the temple, will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Amazing, the word of God. The power of God. He says, these four fast days, which were miserable days, four days out of the year where you didn't eat, where you sat and cried for the destruction of the temple in its various forms, when the siege began, when the siege ended, when the walls were knocked down, when the governor was killed in various different events. Remembering a horrible time. They're going to become joyful days. They're going to become happy days. They're going to become festivals. That's the power of God. Some of the worst things that happen in our lives, God turns around and makes the most glorious things. If those events did not take place in our lives, we might not be in heaven. 
They might not have been, we might not have been drawn to the Lord. Someone else might not have been drawn to the Lord. But God allows those events to take place. And he'll turn them out. All things work together for good to those who love God, those called according to his purpose. That's the power of God. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. The place where the Lord was killed and the symbol of what he was killed on has become a glorious symbol in many ways. Turns the horrible and he transforms it and turns it into greatness. Do you know what diamonds are made out of? Coal. Yeah. Dirty, dark coal. Used for burning. <laughs> making fire. Under pressure, under hard times, under extreme circumstances, God turns it into a diamond. Strong, sharp, glistening, bright. Pearl. What is it that forms a pearl? Where do pearls come from? Dirt, yeah, sand. Piece of sand gets into the clam's mouth. It's irritating to him, he doesn't like it. So he puts saliva over it so it doesn't irritate him anymore. It makes it smooth. And he keeps on doing that. He keeps on putting more and more saliva on it and it becomes a pearl from an irritation. Something that got in that shouldn't have been there. Irritating him becomes a pearl of great price. God turns the horrible things into good, great things, when we surrender them over to him. When we confess our sins, like Job did, praying for others, praying for his children's sins. When we turn over our sins and the sins of our generational sins, turn them over to the Lord. Breaks that habit in our life, breaks that influence in our life, breaks that tendency in our life. Why do we do some of the things we do? We've inherited him generationally. And he wants to set us free and deliver us from it. As we surrender it to him, those fast days will become joyful, glad occasions. True joy. Not party festivity, but true joy. Right? The world looks at horrible times and says, let's forget it, let's get drunk, and let's party all night. And then in the morning things are worse than ever before. Got a car accident now, and this problem now, and said something stupid, didn't even know what I was saying. Infended so many other people, got in a fight. Things just get worse. But when God does it, true joy, like Paul rejoicing in a prison cell, wrongly accused, falsely accused, beaten, bruised, whipped, ready to be beheaded, and rejoicing anyway. True joy. He'll turn those days into joyful, glad occasions, happy festivals. When love, love, when we love truth and peace. Oh, we want the festivals. Oh, we want the glad occasions. Oh, we want peace. Oh, peace, 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 peace and safety. Love, oh, love, we love love. Truth? No, we don't want to know any truth. 
Don't tell us the truth. But the only way to get to true peace, the only way to get to true joy, the only way to get to true gladness is through truth. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Truth and peace come together. You can't have real peace without truth. It's been tried. I tried it for a long time in the 60s. It didn't work. And it doesn't work today either. Been lots of attempts at it. We don't get to peace through lies, through denial of God's truth, through the denial of God's word. The only way to get there is through truth. People don't want truth. Oh, we can all believe whatever, it doesn't matter, even if we don't agree. Just let's all come together, hold arms, lock arms, kumbaya. Now, truth is important. And the only way to true peace is through loving truth. And then will come true gladness and joyfulness and happy occasions as we trust in the Lord. And so we've had 2,000 years, the temple was rebuilt. They didn't have to fast for a few hundred years, then the temple was destroyed again. And so for 2,000 years, we've had to fast. Should we continue to fast? Temple was destroyed. Do we not have a temple? Right, so they came to Zechariah, they came to Haggai, they asked, should we continue to fast? Well, what about us? There's no temple, but you're rebuilding the temple. Should we continue to fast? Do we have a temple? Yes, we do. You, know ye not? You are the temple of the Lord God, of the Holy Spirit. We together are fit stones in God's temple, building up his temple. Yeshua is the chief cornerstone. This cornerstone has already been laid and the temple is being built. We don't need to fast. We can rejoice because the Lord is our temple. He is our strength. He is our salvation. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's building up his kingdom. And he wants to continue to use us in reaching out and grabbing more stones to make it a bigger temple for him. More children for him. More glorious temple for him. Built upon him. Built upon his truth. Built upon his sacrifice in our behalf. Built upon his love. Built upon his resurrection. Built upon his Holy Spirit empowering us and transforming us building up his kingdom here on this earth so that we can go home to the new Jerusalem in heaven that he is building for us. And so as we prepare to pray in another moment, if you've been praying but praying for selfish motives, if you've been fasting but fasting for selfish motives, for what you would benefit from and only from those things, Again, not that it's wrong to pray for some of those things or all those things, but what is our motive? And is that all we pray about? And if that's been the case, then you can confess that now and ask the Lord to give you his heart. That you pray for the lost. That you pray for the lost sheep. That you ask God to make you a good shepherd. To use you in going and seeking and saving that which is lost. And so if you haven't been kind and merciful and loving and compassionate towards your brother, towards your neighbor, towards your sister, 
in a moment when we pray, ask the Lord to give you his heart. You've been devising evil against someone, thinking negative thoughts towards someone, thinking you can confess that, and again, the Lord cleanses. He removes it from us. He takes it and he places it in himself and he dies for it and he buries it away in the tomb and he leaves it there forever. When he came up, resurrected out of that tomb, he didn't bring the sins back out with him. He left them there, buried in there. Dumped them into the depths of the sea. Removed far from us. Remove them, let go of them. Thirdly, if you're holding on to something in the past, something that was done 70 years ago, 45 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 5 days ago, leave it with the Lord. Let go of it. Confess the other people's sins. They did that to you or your sins that you did to them. Give it over. Be removed of the guilt. Be removed of the pain. Leave it with the Lord. He died for it. Let him have the pain for it. Why do you have to have the pain when he already suffered the pain for you? Give it over to him. Or if you're continuing in the generational curse and doing the same thing, maybe different things, but really the same thing. Your parents, grandparents, someone down the line was selfish and you're just as selfish. Maybe you're religious and they weren't, but still really just still selfish. If you want to confess their sins, turn it over to the Lord. Maybe you have some of the same habits, you've inherited some of the same habits they had. You want to turn that over to the Lord, receive his forgiveness. Let him cut it and destroy it and kill that tree and make a new tree. Make all things new in you. Be liberated from the past. Be liberated from the generational curse. That applies to you in a moment when we pray. Let the Lord do that in your life. Fifth or sixth or whatever we're up to. You're experiencing sadness and gloom. You want the Lord to turn whatever negative things in your life into days of gladness, days of joy, days of happy occasions. And in a moment when we pray, lay them at the Lord's feet, claim his promise, that he will work all things together for good to those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. Any of those areas apply to you or maybe some other area that God's been speaking to your heart and mind about? And let us pray together. Maybe you've never accepted him as your Messiah. In a moment when we pray, you can do that. Accept him as the Lamb of God to take away the sins and to fill you with his mind and his heart. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we praise your name and we thank you that you are a God of mercy, that even though the temples were destroyed, you've rebuilt them. Thank you, Lord, that you keep on moving forward. Even though it seems sometimes it takes a long time, a hundred years to rebuild that temple. Lord, you're building your temple. Don't stop. Lord, give us your mind. Give us your heart. Remove everything out of us that's not of you. All our disobedience, all our selfishness, all our selfish prayers, all our wrong motives. Remove it out of us. Thank you, Yeshua, for taking it. Thank you for dying for it. Fill us with your love, fill us with your grace, fill us with your joy, fill us with your cheer, fill us with love, fill us with truth, and walk us in your truth, and walk us in your peace. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.